This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Okay, last episode, we talked about alcohol withdrawal and the difficulties in dealing with agitation and hyperactive delirium. This presents a challenging predicament familiar to anyone that has worked in the ICU. The situation in which you have a patient battling delirium, which we know is a life-threatening condition, but they may have a RAS of plus two or higher, posing a risk of harm to themselves or the clinicians. We have legitimate concerns for line and tube removals, unplanned extubations, falls, or even violence against the healthcare providers. Cultural norm is to automatically restart sedation and usually deeper. But is that most beneficial to the patient? Are our teams, and especially nurses, supported and trained with tools to appropriately assess and address the agitation? Or is our autopilot to mask the agitation and make the movement stop? Yet if the agitation is from delirium, which so often it is, what sense does it make to start or restart deliriogenic medications? Dr. Swami said in episode 61, you can't sedate away delirium. He also said, do we give beta blockers for tachycardia? So such situations and high RASs are when we face this predicament. Sedate or resedate the patient, knowing that this could increase their chances of mortality and lifelong disability, or, or, or what? What tools do we have to keep patients and staff safe with all the life-saving equipment intact in that moment, without exacerbating and prolonging delirium and impeding mobility? Dexmedetomidine is a great medication in response to that agitation. It can and should be used to get to a RAS as close to zero as possible. But even a RASF plus one should be fine too, as we implement the real treatments for agitation and delirium, which are family, communication, and mobility. Yet I'm realizing as I'm at the bedside working with teams that nurses still feel a lot of fear and liability in allowing delirious patients to be close to a zero while intubated. They are terrified of unplanned extubations. This is a main driver of resedating patients during awakening trials. One study showed that awakening trials actually resulted in a higher cumulative dose of midazolam. As sedation was usually restarted and often at a higher dose after the awakening trial in response to the agitation, which I would assume was from delirium. We also tie patients tighter when they are agitated or not trustworthy. I understand it, I've been there. I've definitely done it. But how does that not fuel the fire of agitation and trauma for patients? So what if we had a better support system for nurses? This would include more patient attendants or sitters, better training, mobility practices, open visitation hours so families can really be there and help the patients and even better restraints. Do we really trust our soft wrist restraints? What if there was a better way to titrate our restraints to ensure more security for patients that are at higher risk of unplanned extubations, line and tube removals, but gave more liberty and still security for those that are at less risk with less agitation, but still not liable? Could such improvements help nurses feel more secure and confident about avoiding sedation? This podcast is all about laying out the problems, sifting through the complicated realities we face, and bringing real tools to the table. So this episode, I have Dr. Marie Pavini, an intensivist and innovator, joining us to bring a great solution to the podcast. Dr. Pavini, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, Kaylee. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, My name is Marie Pavini. I'm an intensive care unit physician in Vermont. Um, I've been practicing since 2001. And... um, in that time, uh, I've been mostly at a community hospital, except for my earlier training. Um, and 
during that time, I've done a lot of uh, rounds with the nurses and, and assessed patients and trying to figure out what the best way was that I could help everybody, help the patients, help the staff, really, um, you know, help the community. And um, in doing so, I ended up becoming an innovator. And so I've been on lots of interesting journeys. Yeah. And I think you just fit into this club of revolutionists and even one of the leaders of the revolutionists so perfectly. I had the pleasure of being with Dr. Pravini on site. She came, met with, up with me at a, with a team in Washington when Heidi Engel, um, physical therapist, Jeff Corey, and I went to work with a team in Washington and Marie met us there. And Marie has really powerful insights as an intensivist, um, considering that you've how long have you been an intensivist? Um, so I, I guess I started medical school in 1992. And so I believe 2001 was starting to practice, um, which was in a, a surgical ICU and then uh, bumped to um, a mixed ICU shortly after. And when I consider For 20 years, the timeline, the history of this research that we have about delirium, mobility, sedation, right? You came out when um, it was normal kind of like now, but even worse back in the nineties, early two thousands, when everyone was deeply sedated, but we didn't have back then the evidence that screams that this is harmful. And yet listening to you share your experiences and talk about your practice was really inspiring to me. I could tell that you really practiced the true form of the ADF bundle far before it ever existed. You followed instinct and humanity and compassion. Um, before the evidence even validated that. Share with us. Well, I think that's a great point because yeah. research, of course, is wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, where, where would we be without research? But before research, there's common sense. You have to test the common sense and make sure that it's, that it's okay. But some common sense is so obvious. And um, like you said, there's, there's natural uh, humanity feelings and, and the ability to see what we might be doing wrong and to question it early on. And then to try to do what's right. And in my case, I was in a community hospital, so I was not near research. Uh, so I can remember going to uh, SCCM lectures and uh, the leaders there, J.P. Cress, Wes Ely, Dale Needham, were, you know, were all there. And there were probably only five to ten people in the lectures. And uh, we were talking about early mobilization, delirium prevention. This is in the early 2000s. And... Um, you know, they went on to do all this wonderful research, but I didn't have that. So I tried to build things and uh, to, to, you know, form uh, groups where we would treat patients with humanity, kindness and things that make sense. And as you were saying, when I started, it was just commonplace to sedate and immobilize patients. And when you think about it, that makes sense with we had better technology when I started than for, for my predecessors uh, who didn't really have much. And the only thing they really had was let's get the patient up and moving and make them look more like they would be at home and maybe they'll get home. You know, it, it's really the only thing we had and we'd relied on it. But then technology came in place and we needed to keep patients immobilized in order to, uh, to tolerate what we were doing to them and, and all the new tubes and lines and, um, you know, implantables that we needed to protect to try to make them better, we needed to immobilize them and not have anything dislodge. Um, and, and imagine now being immobilized and sick and in a strange place, you're gonna be agitated. And so the only humane thing to do at that point is to really sedate you and maybe you won't remember what happened to you. And things just snowballed after that. But, but uh, right, the research was going on, but before there was research, there was common sense. And I think about that era, the kind of ventilators they had were not like the ventilators we have now. They were not customizable. They didn't have the sensors. They didn't have the advanced technology we have now to be able to be more comfortable. The endotracheal tubes were stiff. They were smaller, right? Um, we were using large volumes, high peeps. I mean, it was a completely different scenario. So of course, patients could not be comfortable. Um, and everything else has advanced, but our sedation practices didn't really. And yet you questioned these things. You used common sense. And how did you lead your team? What did, what, 
what was your approach at the bedside as an intensivist to solicit these changes that were new to everyone? Well, that's the benefit of then being in a small community hospital. Um, we didn't change shifts a lot. And there were not so many people that everybody had to separate and, and go do their own jobs. Um, we could all work as a team. So I was able to be at the bedside a lot. And since the, the culture was already in place to restrain and sedate patients, um, I needed to be there because I needed to show everybody else that I was truly involved and that I wasn't just telling them what to do. I was there doing it with them. And they need, they need to know that you really believe it, that you're serious about it, and that you really are going to make sure that it's going to happen. Um, and then they'll, um, you know, if they believe in you and they believe in what you're saying, they'll join in. And so it's, it's you know, better to know, to, to be friends with your team and to know them and to be, you know, a small community in, in that respect. In fact, in my situation, we did one week off and one week on for service. So I was on day and night for an entire week. And that meant that I didn't come in in the morning with a big surprise of something that somebody left me. I was able to plan the night before about sedation and mobilization so that I was with a patient for an entire week. So that, that was really helpful. But the culture is ingrained. And if we were not a small group, it would have been nearly impossible to try to change this practice. And then we started to, with the um, electronic health record and documentation became crazy for nurses. So now they're spending 40 to 50% of their time at a computer instead of with their patient. And imagine what this does over the years, the, the bedside nurse being out at the computer more doesn't get the sense of which patients need what thing. They don't, they don't um, get that feeling of what they could probably do with the patient. It's just a matter of fulfilling the orders and then going to document, by the way, about things that are not nurse level critical things to document about. They're yeah. like secretarial and LNA things to, to, to document, but they're being made to do it. So patient care is less. And you have to think that that plays into the nursing shortage. It's, <laughs> it's only, um, I mean, I suppose it's a it's a factor in maybe not the total cause, but imagine how much more nursing time at the bedside we would have if they weren't 40 to 50 percent at the computer. We'd have much less of a nursing shortage. Nurses would not be nearly as burnt out. They would feel like they were doing what they got into nursing to do, which is to evaluate and and have some say in what happens to the patient day by day, hour to hour. So I'm not, I can't even remember what the question was that you asked. I, I <laughs> no, I, I, no you bring so many good points. We, I feel like sedation and immobility, it just places patients onto this conveyor belt, but you make a good point of how the time dedicated to staring at a computer allows the patient just, just continue on the conveyor belt with no further an assessment analysis because that disconnect from the patient is perpetuated by the physical disconnect they're often outside the room they're not looking at the patient they're not touching the patient so you have them sedated and mobilized where you don't expect to have human connection and now you have this obligation to dedicate so much of your time to a computer <laughs> which further disconnects you from the patient and that creates a huge barrier absolutely you make a really good point and so you also bring up a good point about continuity of care your ability to be with that patient throughout the days and nights you didn't come on realizing that night shift increased or started sedation without need you were there to help support them and keep it off those kind of team dynamics and I think that is what we still need even now in 2023 especially to have physicians that are invested in that process and are willing to utilize those tools I think sometimes as we've seen physicians don't necessarily know what to do when a patient is agitated they too have been taught to just sedate them, right? So we're turning to physicians with the expectation that they're supposed to lead this out, but how do you lead something you've never done? It's a theoretical question, but really you did it. You led something well, that you know, it was funny. My, my, um, my research colleagues used to call me um, an attender resiturn because being in a community hospital, I had to do everything. 
so, and they, they don't get to do that, you know? Yeah. And so sure. A lot of uh, physicians are disconnected and they're going off shift and they're listening to a nurse who's telling them what's happening. And, and they just, you know, some of them just came out of school too. So everybody's coming in with their different levels of education and their different levels of experience and listening to the people before them. Mm-hmm. And that's how this culture gets started. Yep. You know? And gets stuck. Right. And then, yeah, as a resident, as a new doctor, I think I would have a really hard time, even as a nurse practitioner, I think I would have a hard time telling very seasoned nurses that probably know more than me. No, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to sedate the patient, right? To question that pillar of their practice, it is a scary endeavor. So I have really enjoyed learning from your journey, the history and the insight that you give to this little community hospital in Vermont and the incredible things that you were able to do that defy the practices of that time and even of today. And let's zoom back out into the history and let's talk about restraints. I think obviously restraints have been around for hundreds of years, (laughs) but how do restraints become such a key part of critical care medicine? Well, I think, again, it goes back to, I believe it had roots in psychiatric care. Um, but then as we required, uh, you know, we had more and more technology and we required more tubes and lines to be kept in place. And as you said, our equipment was not that good. Um, and uh, all of a sudden we said, well, we have this thing, you know, we have restraints and that will keep the patient still so that we can make them better. And we have these sedation and sedation started getting better. Right. We had, you know, started out with just benzos and then we we had we got propofol and even later we got Presidex. And so, you know, and there were antipsychotics and of course all the research that was going on and which was good and which was bad, but we were thinking about it anyway, and we were improving. Um, so we felt like we were doing the right thing and we were doing the best thing. Um, but people were not realizing that the patient, although they look pretty calm and relaxed and comfortable and we're doing all these high tech things, to them that, you know, we're patting ourselves on the back for, but that patient is slowly devolving and losing their quality of life and their chance for their own future. And when we, when we see a patient leave the ICU alive and maybe without the disease or the disorder that they came in with, we all think this is great. This was a success. Our technology works. Our efforts are working. And they're they're doing great. They're they're gone to step down now, or they've gone to rehab. They're on their way to getting back. But it's not happening. This this isn't this isn't what's really happening. Patients are quietly delirious, and they're quietly muscle wasting, um, and they're quietly becoming a victim for the rest of their lives. They're they're entrained to be a victim to. Uh, to lie there and let all the people who know what they're doing do what they have to do to them. And so they they leave thinking that they need to always be that and that they're they can't be independent anymore, that that they shouldn't move and they they shouldn't do this. And and so I think that it was quiet for so long. And just before COVID, I don't know, maybe a few years before COVID, the research was getting done and data were coming out. And we started to realize that this was not a good thing for patients to be restrained and sedated, that delirium was happening, that early mobilization couldn't happen um, because sedation was there. And, and even when you take sedation off, it's really still there for a while. It's still affecting the body and it's still affecting the mind, even when it's been off for a while, especially depending on which type of sedation it was. And so, you know, I think that um, those efforts were underway um, and, and maybe we could talk about it later, but then, you know, COVID hit and everything sort of stopped. But as far as restraints, that never changed. So everybody was talking about early mobilization and from early mobilization, everybody started talking about sedation. And so the two big Phrases were early mobilization and sedation minimization. But if you're boots on the ground, what you're going to see is that, sure, early mobilization can't get done when someone's sedated. 
but you can't not sedate someone who's tied down to the bed. It's not going to work. And a nurse is not going to untie somebody from the bed and leave them alone. Now, that said, there's examples. There's few examples of where this happens. There's little tiny pockets of where this is happening. And that's when the entire team is motivated and, and on top of this. And, and they're going to all join in and, and all stay doing the same thing and keeping the patient at the center of attention. But 99.9% um, .9 of places are just not going to do that. Not everybody's on the same page. Not everybody believes in it. Not everybody knows about it. So, so when you think about why is a patient sedated, um, sure, it's partly because they're so sick that it's uncomfortable. A lot of it is the perception of the bedside caregiver about how uncomfortable that patient is. Because we've seen patients who have every right to be as uncomfortable as another patient, but are not. They're, they're kept awake and they're not nearly as, as uh, upset by things as we think they should be. They're I've actually, watched patients on a PEEP of 18 and 100% who they're not doing car wheels, but they're not writhing. They're not languishing. They can tell me that they're not in pain or if they are in pain, we can treat it. We can treat the air hunger. But they're compliant, they're, they're unrestrained, they're safe. But then other patients that are on a PEEP of 8 by 40, 50% are strapped down to the bed. And we're terrified about them pulling their lines out. Um, it doesn't, yeah, make, it's not just the ventilator. <laughs> right, right. And don't forget about the patient who has withdrawal mm -hmm. or who is dangerous. Yeah, because that's the example that a lot of bedside staff want to bring up when, when we talk about not restraining somebody or not sedating them. Well, I'm not going to get hit. You know, I'm not going to put myself in danger. You know, it's not worth it. I'm running around like I'm not taking care of people. I'm not going to, you know, put my, my uh, physicality in danger. And we're seeing a lot, a lot more uh, nurse endangerment these days because of other issues, because of other safety precautions that are not there for them. Well, and, we and a lot of that is rooted in delirium. Yes, yes, of course. And so, some people are just rotten people, you know, but the, <laughs> but the percentage is so small. We can't use them as as what we now are going to punish everybody else because of of the very, very few. Yep. Um, and, and like you said, the ones who are not just mean people are probably delirious. And we see all those people who uh, were not in their right mind later on in their right mind apologizing. That's not to say that we can, you know, let them beat up on us while, when they're in that state. We have to do the right thing. But we, I, and, and then I guess that's where my involvement started with, is that we didn't have the right tools. So the restraints that we have, the options are wrist restraints, mitt restraints, um, the elbow immobilizers. Um, and then there's the creative ones like a loosely tied mitt or a loosely tied wrist restraint, or a bedside sitter. And then, of course, chemical restraint. And chemical restraint can come in lots of forms. So every time you know, we get guidance that tells us to reduce sedation or to use better sedation, it comes with loopholes that, sure, you need to minimize sedation, but if the patient has a diagnosis that requires sedation, then you can use it and nobody's going to question you. And so now you can say there's anxiety or, uh, you know, the, the patient has pain because they have an endotracheal tube in and they've got lines. It, it must be painful. I think I saw their brow move. And, you know, now I can use opiates. And, uh, you know, so there's just lots of ways to to get around the guidelines that are trying to help people. But we can rationalize yeah, so it any which way. Yep. And I think a lot of sedation that's used. Um, is for quote agitation, especially when we've started sedation. And then at this subjective point later, we know that we have to do an awakening trial. Um, you know, their ventilator settings are minimal and now it's harder to rationalize having them sedated because we know they probably should be working towards getting extubated. We want to do a breathing trial, but we have to do that, that stinking awakening trial that everyone hates. You turn it down. 
boom, they come out with thrashing, kicking. Right. We interpret that as it's inhumane to have them off of sedation. They're agitated. Yeah. They're uncomfortable. We turn sedation off on, and now we've treated them. Now they're more humane. But now that we've seen them be agitated and thrashing, we're terrified. We don't want to get hit as nurses. We don't want to get, be assaulted. We also feel the sense of obligation to keep them safe, which is rational, but also, but we're not considering the risks and harm of sedation. Our focus is keeping those tubes and lines in place. So we're in a hard point where now we've created delirium. Um, we have to get sedation off, but we also have to keep them safe. How do we do it? And I was working with a hospital system that was saying, okay, but yeah, we, we're going to have agitated patients. And even in those soft wrist restraints, Boy, they can get down, they can get it out, which is true. I've seen people almost get the maneuver. Yes, the maneuver. <laughs> so, but but just because they're delirious, they're confused and agitated, what sense does it make to turn back on a deliriogenic medication? It's like, why would you treat delirium with something that causes delirium? We would never treat sepsis with bacteria. So yeah, we're right. at this hard point where the restraints can um, precipitate and exacerbate delirium agitation and all those things. It's terrifying to be strapped down when you have no idea what's going on. But you asked this important question is, is that the best thing for someone that's experiencing that to have them strapped down? Is that really safe? Is that really beneficial? Well, that's it. So, but the answer is that the nurse has to go document or the nurse has to go take care of another patient. Are they going to leave this person who is like agitated because we just turned off the sedation? alone and put a lot of effort into being there? No, you know, and, the, and then the other harm that's being uh, um, put upon these patients is the thought that they're just not ready yet. They're not ready yet. You know, they could be perfectly ready, oh, you know, they I could hate be ready that. to wean. And, but, but, you know, when they wake up and they're agitated and they're delirious, oh, they're not ready yet. Put them back in the oven and we'll try again in a day or two. Um, you know, and so we have a good example of that with um, a survivor that I interviewed. She was intubated for um, just airway protection. She had um, Ludwig's angina. And so her her airway was swollen, full of infection. I think she had an abscess. That was it. Just airway protection. Of course, they sedated her. I think about six days after intubation, she probably had an air, a cuff leak. She probably would have been okay to be extubated. Mm-hmm. They turned on sedation. She had traumatizing horrific delirium came out thrashing she heard them say oh she's not ready yet <laughs> they turned it back on she ended up intubated for i think 17 18 days yeah this is not that unusual no it's it's all because of our own perception and not what's really going on with the patient and another thing that happens in situations like that especially with um older adults is when they're sedated or if they look really agitated when you finally wake them up the, the consensus is that we are harm, we're doing more harm than good. We're having to hurt them so much by trying to make them better. We should just go to palliative care. This is inhumane and we should stop doing what we're doing. We're torturing these people to make them better. Let's call palliative care in and stop this madness when really it just needed a different pathway and things would have gone much differently. So I think we're uh, calling palliative care a lot more than we normally would have if we would give it a lot a lot of effort up front to do everything that we could to reduce delirium to figure out what's causing the delirium to um to mitigate it and uh to allow the patient to be awake and not look like they're dead so that we think they should be dead Ooh, that's profound yeah, yeah absolutely i think we we set expectations by what we see and yes, if we make them look like they're dying and or dead, we dehumanize them. We we have no idea what their potential could be. We're also giving them lethal treatment. So we are determining their destiny and saying they're going to die because. I mean, I'm just because we're giving them lethal treatment. I don't know how to tactfully <laughs> say that. But and again, this is my podcast. I can ruffle feathers. You can turn it off if you're offended. But um, we cannot fix what we can't confront. Right. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. 
Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And when you look at PTSD, it would be very traumatizing to be strapped down to the bed. But I've had patients asked to be restrained, like loosely restrained at night because they're, I would probably ask the same. I don't trust myself to wake up and not be a little disoriented. I'm a sleepwalker sometimes. So I would, that's different. That's not traumatizing to them. Whereas when you have delirium, now you're strapped down. So some teams that I've consulted with, they say, well, we, we don't allow restraints because that causes PTSD. Um, which blows my mind. If you're not using chem- it's physical restraints, <laughs> how right. bad is, are your chemical restraints? And to, a, consistently exactly. teams that do not allow physical restraints have on average a rest of negative three to negative five. And oftentimes their negative fives are not charted as negative fives, which is a whole nother discussion, right? But you just know. Yeah, but that discussion maybe should almost be in this discussion because you yes. can't measure it. Just like you said, if you don't know about it, you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. And those in, inaccurate RAS scores are not letting us see the true picture. And so our research data is skewed. Yep. And our response is skewed. Absolutely. And and yes, I've had people say, well, we don't deeply sedate our patients, but when we work with the nurses, um, they don't even they don't see the difference between voice response and physical response, right? They're they're just not trained, which is again, this is not against nurses. This is just a systemic problem that nurses are subjected to they're put into this they process also don't have anything to do if they can't get the patient to be what the order says what else do they have they don't yes. have anything else they can do and they're they, short they more time in the day yep i think people assume in the wake and walk and i see that patients are one-to-one um with nurses which is not true i worked as an rn in that unit for um about five years I almost always had two to one and oftentimes two vented patients, right? You try to mix them up, but nonetheless, they were safer because they didn't have the same rates of delirium, right? Which is key. We were not chemically restraining these patients, but we did use restraints when it was needed. But I love your device because I see this gap that I didn't really question beforehand. I do remember having patients restrained that I still didn't feel comfortable turning my back on. I didn't feel confident that um, with a RAS of plus two, plus one, um, that they weren't going to get into trouble <laughs> when right. my back was and, turned. And imagine in your ICU, which is like premium, right? You know, if that's still a concern, then you you don't like the only devices that you have available. Now go to all the other ICUs, you know, except for a handful that are trying to fix a problem with without any kind of the right tool. So everything is not standardized everybody's Mm -hmm. trying something different and they're trying something different at different times during the day and they're trying something different depending on when somebody's coming around to do a therapy and so everything's happened in such a random fashion at such such different times of the day there's no way to do a research study that's going to get the results in any kind of a large study fashion anyway that's going to get results that are meaningful because everybody's doing something different they can use the same terms and it sounds like they're doing the same thing, but they're not. And so I feel like the device that that I came up with, which by the way, you know, had a lot of input from other nurses, mostly nurses, and also other physicians, other um, uh, clinical staff, um, so that if everybody is using a device, the same device that has a lot of variability in it, in other words, you can titrate it. You can titrate it from being very conservative to to very liberal. Then you have the safety that you need and you have the mobility that you need and you can titrate it to go along with whatever is going on with the patient. So usually it's one of those three things that's missing and everybody's reaching for a different device to try to fix it. 
So if we had the same device that can do everything, and, and I'll say there are some caveats. Um, we don't want it on a prone patient. We don't want it on somebody who could otherwise lift a, a Volkswagen, you know, <laughs> uh, because they're withdrawing or something. Uh, so th there's a few patients, but again, we're not going to talk about the very, very few patients and punish everybody else for that. So um, I think what we want is a safe device that allows mobility and titration. So that's what we came up with. And for the listeners, check out on the transcription for this episode. I'll have links to videos so you can see um, Marie's device. It's called Refraint. So it's not just restraint, it's a refraint, which I think that was obviously very thoughtful um, to use that terminology. But even in the video, watch it a few times. I think when nurses first see it, even when they see it in person, they completely misinterpret it. I, I experience it's one of those things where you have to try it on yourself. You have to try it on someone else, really understand the technology behind it. Otherwise, you see something new and that shock factor blinds you from being open to understanding the actual application of it. So, Marie, even just over podcast audio, explain to us what features your refraint has. Sure. So just like you said, it's bigger. You know, just like uh, the stand assist device devices are bigger than gate belts. You know, there are some things that are bigger because they're more comfortable that way and they're more ergonomic and they're more safe for the person using it. So it is bigger and uh, it's basically comprised of um, a clear tube that goes alongside outside the arm and doesn't touch the arm. And then there's a clear soft shield that goes over the hand. Um, that the patient is attached to this device by a soft strap at the wrist and a soft strap at the shoulder, the axilla. And those are the only two places that it touches the patient, except that the hand is resting on soft neoprene. So basically whatever is under that fabric is what the, the patient is on. The, the wrist strap that uh, attaches the patient to the device is uh, a sort of a slip loop so that um, if the patient gets edema, this wrist area will automatically regulate to that edema. So it won't constrict the wrist the way other restraints constrict a wrist if the patient gets edema. And we're all taught to look for that, but it happens in between the checks. That's just, you know, that's when it happens. You two hours and and boom, the patient has neurovascular injury. But you know, with that edema, yes, we look for it, we see it, but what can we do about it? Right. If you have a exactly. patient that really needs to be restrained and yes, they're fluid overloaded. Well, you're trying to minimize sedation. You're weighing out all these risks. So yeah, you're going to be a little bit more accepting of pressure on a dimidus extremity. Because but when you take off restraints, you suddenly realize, wow, this is an, there's an imprint in the wrist from the restraints. But again, when we don't have any other options, we kind of right. normalize and accept it. Absolutely, absolutely. And then some of the other features are, so you get a patient who's going to be variable within their course. So they may be um, uh, just so sick that they can barely move anyway. And then they start to wake up and maybe they don't know where they are or pain starts to become uh, an issue because they were so out of it before that they didn't realize they had pain or, or whatever it is. And they change and they become agitated and then they become sedated and then they become sicker and they and then something else happens. So there are two optional bed straps to this device. So the goal is to just have the device on the patient so they can move around with full range of motion at the shoulder. So we're going to try to reduce rotator cuff injuries and frozen shoulder. And they have mobility at the elbow. So again, cutting down on frozen joints and the, the auto-regulating wrist strap cutting down on uh, neurovascular injury. And I, and I say those things, not that they've been proven, but they are tools that the, the person using the device can enact if they use the device properly, depending on how they want to use it. So if the patient, let's say, is not maybe so much agitated, but let's say that they're really confused and sort of swinging wildly, not because they're trying to hit anybody, but just because they're so confused and, and swinging, uh, there's, a, there's a restraint uh, strap that you can use, and there's a uh, an exercise bed strap. So for that patient, you might want to use the exercise resistance bed strap. So it's always on the bed frame, and you can just within 10 seconds attach it to the device, and then you can titrate that resistance band 
to allow a lot of movement or a little bit of movement, and it's against resistance. So the nurse can stay safe and titrate how far the patient can move and how much effort it will take the patient to move that distance so they can adjust the resistance. Um, and then if a patient is just temporarily needs restraint until you can fix the situation, uh, then there's a restraint strap that you can just uh, put along the device uh, immediately. And even when it's in that restraint position, it's still a better restraint because it's only tugging on the device. It's not tugging on the patient. So the patient can actually still move their wrist in all directions and uh, under that clear shield. And the, the uh, restraint strap will only keep, keep the arm in the vicinity right next to the bed, but the, but the wrist can still move around. So it's still better, even as a restraint. And having seen the straps that you're talking about, there's Velcro all throughout that strap. It's, in my mind, so much more secure than a, a variable tie of the restraint. I think we've all experienced that those restraints can get loosened with enough pressure or we all tie them somewhat differently. Um, I've shared on an unplanned excavation um, episode that one of my unplanned excavations was because there was a floor nurse watching a kind of a boarding patient on the unit during a night shift. I didn't realize that they didn't have ICU experience. I had them come in and help me boost a patient up. I tied down my restraint. I didn't check his and um, he w it wasn't tied properly and the patient was delirious and got to his tube. Um, he was okay. Everything was fine. But it was one of those things where seeing your strap, that would have been a totally different scenario because he would have just been able to just tie just Velcro. It's so simple mm -hmm. and so much more secure. That tight, that is sturdy fabric that you're using for the Velcros. That is so much in my mind, better and not going to stretch as much as some of the restraint, the soft wrist restraints. But right. and it's standardized, yeah. And it's standardized, yes. Everyone's going to do it the same, and it's reliable. Um, but I also appreciate that that doesn't have to be used for every patient. If we think about delirium, confusion, sundowning, dementia, we have such a spectrum of reasons for patients to be confused, different encephalopathies. Um, their presentations are variable. Not every patient is a plus four on the RAS scale, but right. they still, they can be a plus one and still need restraints. You can just have the pickers that are just going right. to get busy with their fingers and get into stuff. Um, right. And they're going to get antipsychotics. And they're going to get antipsychotics, right? <laughs> or they're going to get deeply restrained or um, deeply sedated and tied down. But do they have to be tied down or do they just need something like a mitt? But I think we've, I don't, I won't say everyone. So maybe if you work in a unit where everyone's deeply sedated, you haven't really encountered these problems. But when you're working towards lightning sedation, you're going to find that patients are unique. They're all different. They're variable. That's this, that is the trend amongst humans. So when you allow patients to be human, you're going to have different scenarios and you're going to have to critically think. So I'm thinking of patients that um, are pickers, but if you tie them down, they're going to get more agitated. They're going to get more panicked. Right. But mitts are not always the best option. If they're edematous, it's hot, it's sweaty. That alone can cause panic when they feel like something is really compressing their hands. That's not normal. So mm -hmm. I love that this device, their hands are free. Their wrists aren't even be, being pulled on. If they're just pickers, they can just move their arms around. But that's what actually panicked nurses, I think, in your video when I shared it, is they right. saw that the patients could raise their arms and they panicked, which... Yes made me panic. I thought, wow, if we're that, if we had that much of a visceral response to seeing a patient move their arms, the problem is not right. your refraint. The problem is the culture of the ICUs, exactly. but to recognize that there are patients that yes, will need to be tightly restrained. They, um, if you have a RAS of three or four, yes, you need to have immediate action to keep everyone safe while you recalibrate and figure it out it has to be available and i'm thinking about let's use a scenario of um maybe a patient with um, that comes in for pneumonia they're an alcoholic they start to withdraw right i would historically now i'd probably use phenobarbital but i think in the past i would really liked librium so maybe we're having librium we're trying to figure out the right dose for it maybe they have some breakthrough they're having some agitation so maybe we've had this intubated patient we've mobilized them They've walked around the unit, they're in bed, they're fine, right? But they're still confused, they're having some withdrawal. So they are restrained um, or they have some restraints on, let's say your refraint. And 
Then they come out of their nap and they're disoriented. They're confused. They're needing some more Librium or another phenobarbital push. But in that moment, what do you do? I've been in that situation where um, the wrist restraints are not enough. And I'm yelling out to the hall, hey, someone grab elbows. Some, or I can't even get to the corner of my room to grab the elbows and um, binders in the cart because I'm trying to keep the patient down. Yeah, I need yeah. an extra hand. It's stressful. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to me. It's dangerous to the patient. But with your device, when I was holding it in my hands or and you had it on, I'm like, oh my gosh, in that scenario, boom, I've got an elbow binder right there built into it. I can just reinforce the elbows. I can tighten it down with the Velcro. It's already there. If I had this patient where they could move their arms, I don't have to then try to get the restraints tied down underneath the bed. I've got Velcro right there. Boom, I've got them Velcroed. I've got them right. secured. If you don't have a device, the arm is flailing. You have a bent elbow and fists and everything yes. coming at you. Yes, How, when you already have bending elbows and you need, when you recognize that you need elbows, it's too late. It's hard to get the elbows on. There, whereas the elbows are already there and you can titrate how much the elbows can move. I just, it just seems so much more humane. You don't have to punish the patients that are just pickers <laughs> and treat right. them like you they are the thrashers. Yep. But they change. There's mixed delirium, like 22.2% of delirium is mixed delirium, meaning that it's not reliable. They're not going to be comatose all the time. They're not going to be hyperactive all the time. So makes sense to have something that you can titrate to go with what they need in that moment and be prepared if something changes. So nurses freaked out like it was something less secure, more dangerous to them. When in my mind, and now that I've used and experienced it, it's the opposite. It is so much safer for the patient, more humane for the patient, but safer and easier for the team. You don't have to have three people come in and try to wrangle this patient and get all these devices on because everything you need is right there. Right. And whatever device that they reach for is going to have an issue because it's not always going to be the right thing. It's only the right thing for one moment in time. And so the wrist restraint is great until somebody figures out that they can slither their head down and pull the tube out anyway. Or because, you know, when they get so agitated, they're going to get, you know, chemical restraint on top of that anyway. And they, they get sweaty they, underneath it and it affects the yeah. dressing for the pick line or their edema has like there's so many right. problems to that. And you can do re elbows and then what we give that PR and dose of phenobarbital. Now they're fine, but they're going to end up with those elbow restraints for the next week straight. <laughs> right. And those because elbow restraints cover, right. Like you said, they cover the elbow, uh, the water wing uh, type ones, uh, cover the skin. They can macerate it. It's, it's warm and moist under there. And you don't know what's going on in there with your tubes and, and your lines. And patients even bite them off and they can still reach for catheters and things. And they can reach over to the other one on the opposite side. So that's only good for one point in time. It's not going to be good for the, for the patient's whole stay. And mitt restraints, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen where um, patients like to squeeze the mitts around the endotracheal tube and, uh -huh. and pull, the, pull the tube out. And those mitt restraints uh, restrict finger activity. So the patient can't hold anything. Uh, they can't do a call button. They can't do a remote. They can't hold hands. You they can't, can't write. refill checks. You can't do finger stick glucose checks. Um, and uh, you know, uh, the, so the refraint deals with that in that the hand is free under a shield that's over the, the hand. That's what makes it bigger because there's a soft, clear shield over it. It's bigger, but the hand is free underneath. It's much more comfortable. And we, we also have um, another feature of the device is Therapete. And Therapete is a, um, a little uh, human-shaped um, squeezy uh, mechanism that the patient can be doing uh, digital exercise. So dexterity, strength, and comfort, because lots of patients feel like, oh, I've got what I need in my hand. This is fine, I'm gonna be okay. Uh, we used to just try to give patients um, face cloths or something to hold onto because they felt more secure if they were holding something. So um, in the device, the patient is still doing occupational therapy and that's not gonna happen in any other device. And I'm having flashbacks to taking myths off of people and you see them open and close their hand. Like <laughs> it reminds me of the movies when they get the shackles taken off and they're like, oh, thank goodness. I can finally move my wrist. I can move my hands. That is probably what they're experiencing when they've been in a mitt for so long. They haven't been able to open and close their hand. How often do we have our hands flat and restrained 
like that. And I, I really, honestly, I did not think about mitts that way, but I, now I'm thinking about how patients respond and you take them off and it makes sense. I did not think about patient perspective and they do, they can, they're very creative. If they want to get the tube out, they, they will use the mitts to do that. And I know that if someone's just tuning into this episode and they haven't listened to the episodes beforehand, they're going to say, this is insane. Just sedate that patient. (laughs) Exactly. What are you doing? Like, don't, don't even bother, right? If they don't have the context and understanding how lethal sedation is, they're going to say, why would you even bother with that? But the objective is to master the ADAF bundle, to minimize sedation and avoid it at all costs. But you have to have the tools to enable that when you hit these exactly. circumstances. So right. when you think about the financial side of it, um, go back to episode 95, talking about the financial sinkhole of sedation and immobility. When you're Increasing on complications, length of stay, workload, all the things just because you've used sedation because you didn't have a way to keep them safe while they had yeah. delirium um, and allow them to be liberated with del- from delirium over a few days because you didn't have the right devices to keep right. them so you, safe. Right. So you can minimize delirium by minimizing sedation, by minimizing restraint. And then when you have a more awake and mobile patient, don't be afraid of moving arms. I, I actually have a, a lecture on. Um, sedaction, which is the, you know, the, the sweet spot of minimal sedation and maximum action, maximum mobility that is safe. And so you cannot be afraid of the moving arm. The moving arm is good. It clears secretions. It helps gut motility. It reduces stasis ulcers. It reduces DVTs. It allows patients to um, participate in their own care to tell you that they need to be suctioned, even if they're writing it. Uh, to to be able to nod, uh, you know, yes, I want to keep going. No, I, I don't want to be intubated anymore. Whatever it is, there's so much that affects the financial bottom line of a hospital. Never mind just the, you know, the humanity of it, right. but uh, can affect costs in, in a, a significant way. And I'm now thinking back to these survivors that I've interviewed on the podcast, even those that did not have delirium. So I'm thinking of um, one of our ARDS survivors. She didn't have any experiences under sedation, but her trauma and her panic came from coming out of sedation and not being able to lift a finger, just being trapped in her own body, working so hard to will her finger to touch the remote or the call button, and then falling asleep out of exhaustion, trying to lift her finger. Mm-hmm. Would that have been the case if she had something that would have allowed her to lift her arms, move her fingers, stay mobile? Um, during that time, it would have been a completely different experience for her. And, and as you were saying before, some patients don't need to be restrained at all. They need nothing. But the nurse doesn't know that. So it's not going to happen. Oh, that's so you point. need the device to let the bedside staff feel safe. And then it will happen. And then the bonding will be able to take place. Um, one of the things I found um, as I was trying to, you know, so I, I had uh, I did a pilot study. And then uh, we had such good results with uh, less sedation, uh, less agitation, more mobility, greater interaction, better patient satisfaction, nurse satisfaction, because they started to bond with their patient, better family satisfaction. So we ended up getting about, I think, three uh, NIH grants to develop and commercialize the device to get it out there. We hoped to get it out during COVID or in time for COVID. Yep. But what I found when I was trying to tell people, look, I've got this thing now. It's great. You're going to, you know, it's going to be so good, especially during COVID, you know, the, the delirium factory where, you know, I've got an answer and uh, no. Uh, so, I mean, of course we were worried about just survival, you know, just ourselves as caregivers. I can remember, um, you know, showering after a, a shift and, and doing like the most, uh, comprehensive cleaning I've ever done in a shower before in <laughs> yep. my facial area before Burning going your home clothes. I didn't want to <laughs> yeah exactly you know before going home uh you don't want to give it to anyone. so we were scared we wanted to survive ourselves we needed enough ventilators that's all we were focused on and then um when when that sort of we, we felt like okay we've got a handle on this COVID thing it's not over yet but we have a handle on it um that's a couple of years of education and momentum for moving patients and understanding what happens to them when they're sedated that was lost. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to get that ball rolling again. And it's really difficult. And so nobody was interested in my restraint alternative, which to me was 
just almost criminal. And uh, so I said, what am I going to do? And so I said, you know what? I have to let these people experience what the patient is experiencing. It. So what is the patient is experiencing? So um, we ended up developing a virtual reality delirium experience. So, um, you know, when you put the headset on, you enter in the body of the patient and uh, you experience what it's like to, to be in the hospital, to be in an ICU room, um, intubated, restrained, and the doctor and the nurse coming in to talk to you and telling you things. And then the sedation is started for, for what is seemingly good reasons. And then what happens to you from all of that? And you experience the delirium, the hallucinations, the fear, anxiety, hopelessness, helplessness. And um, after that, then you enter you, that, that um, part of the module ends and you enter in the body of the caregiver. And you're asked to perform certain tasks like turn the patient, suction the patient within this module. And so if you do it incorrectly, say you don't tell the patient what you're doing or you don't introduce yourself or you don't tell the patient what's going on, their hallucination enters the picture again. You can see it. And so you have to back up and do the right thing for that hallucination to go away. Um, and then you also are run through um, how to assess delirium. So you're, you're run through those CAM questions, those CAM ICU questions, so that you, you understand what you need to do and sedation agitation and, and you, you know, sort of get the whole comprehensive idea of how those questions are linked to what the patient is experiencing and uh, experiencing. And so when you put the headset on and you become that patient, it is a memory for you now. It wasn't just a lecture you heard. You didn't just have to get the answer right on a quiz. You experienced it. And it is now a memory just in the same way that when those people experience those hallucinations and they're not real, they're actually memories for them. They entered their brain as memories. And so the education now can enter the bedside caregiver as a memory so that when they go to their next patient and they start to maybe say things that could be turned into a hallucination for the patient, or they do things to the patient that's going to start those, those hallucinations and delirium happening, they, they get a visceral response to not do it. And they remember their training of how that relates to the, to the questions that they're supposed to ask the patient. And then they remember what can alleviate those symptoms, what, what that delirium could mean. Maybe they do need to be suctioned. Maybe they do have a little pain. Maybe they're just afraid. Maybe they're worried about the bills at home or their pet. You know, there's lots of things that, that can cause those, um, those reactions from a patient. Um, and until you eliminate those, you should not be just adding the sedation back and tying them down. Your virtual, virtual reality program is so vivid. Um, and I'm sure it's nothing in comparison to what delirium is really like, how vivid survivors portray it as or explain to me how real it is to them. They've said it's more real than what you and I are experiencing right now. Nonetheless, putting those goggles on was um, just just startling. <laughs> so I would I we offered it to one of the physicians at the on site, but he had already experienced delirium, and we backed off and said, you know what, that's probably going to be triggering, and I really yeah. think that it would be because it's that realistic. And I wonder that is that tool probably does more than I could do in like five podcast episodes, right? As far as giving insight. And there's no way, I just can't imagine that there's any way that any nurse or any clinician that does those scenarios with your goggles, your virtual reality goggles can approach awakening trials in the same way or approach sedation period in the same way, but especially awakening trials, because we believed just held on to this belief that patients come out agitated because of the ventilator but once they've seen it from the patient's perspective, how will that impact how they respond to that agitation, right? And what it's like for them when sedation is resumed and they're shoved back in deeper to those hallucinations. Uh, thank you so much for developing that. Thank you for getting it. Thank you for listening to survivors and understanding their perspective and providing a way for us to teach that. When I saw that, I just knew you're my woman. <laughs> you are. <laughs> You are my kind of um, revolutionist because you're really out there to make a change and bring in the why. Because you, well, I have to say that back at you, Kaylee. Because when I experienced your um, week-long seminar that you did in Washington, I was blown away. 
the case studies that you used and uh, the interaction that you had with everybody, they were they were riveted, they were glued and they were listening to everything and they did their homework before you came. And uh, they really learned a lot. They learned, I, I heard them reciting back all the, the risks that that particular patient in that case uh, scenario had and how they could mitigate those factors and and um, how they could try to diagnose and and you know what different things that they what tools that they had. Um, so I was blown away by by you and uh, by this effort that you've put forth in the awake and walking ICU uh, was totally uh, revolutionary. And I think that uh, we need a few more people like you uh, to be out there and and training people. Well, I, I have already people on the waiting list, right? People that are adapting this into their practice, people in these ICUs that I've worked with that are gaining that experience and that expertise to then go out and train others because that's, this is going to take, it does, it takes hands-on real interactions and experience and understanding the why. I think you and I had similar experiences during COVID where here we are watching this unfold, experiencing it firsthand. And we have so many tools for the how. We see the problem. We have so much for the solution, but the community didn't understand the why. So then it, it didn't mean anything, no matter how many tools you have, unless you see the problem and feel an urgency about it, you don't care about the solution. So that's what your virtual reality goggles do is here's the problem. Here's the why. And here, here's the how, here's my refrains. And right. having you on site, bless your heart. I have to tell everyone that... <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pavinia came on site to help us use a virtual reality goggles to train on the refrain, to test it out, to show this team. Um, and the first night I thought, well, while you're here, do you want to play the patient? <laughs> she ended up playing the patient the entire week, <laughs> which was a lot of work for her. Um, but she was but so was a good actress. <laughs> you were so good. No, I could tell that you, you had experienced this, right? You had practiced in your career in a way in which you really worked with patients that had delirium, that you really tried to avoid sedation. You understood the different races. You understood the terror, the anxiety, the experience, like you just got it and you portrayed it beautifully. Um, what was it like for you to play the patient during all that simulation training? Well, it, it was a little bit triggering, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I can, I could see that for a couple of decades. Right. And, you don't really, I didn't understand how much I really empathized with those patients. I, I was glad that I could understand the patient. I always had that little wall so that I could mm -hmm. keep on going, that I didn't let anything get so far inside of me uh, that it would, it would stop me from being able to perform my duties. And so there's always that wall. But I always felt like if anybody did, I really could understand and be compassionate. And, and, but when I had to play the patient and act out, some of the things I remember seeing, I mean, the terror and the fear just could come inside of me. And I was, I was those patients uh, that I was portraying. And I thought, man, if, if anybody knew how terrorizing this is, they would never do it to even one person. Ever. Ever. Um. Yeah, this has been, yes, I worked in Awake and Walk and ICU. I've seen and experienced and even provided incredible care. But this journey of interacting and really diving in with survivors and with teams into the research, like it is just so much more real to me. And yes, I regret being a, during my travel nurse times sedating patients. I recognize that I did probably more harm than I could have ever imagined at that time and I feel twinges of guilt but at the same time that empowers me it's like bringing these two perspectives together helps me understand what needs to happen in the future and that's what I hope we do with this information as we experience your virtual reality reality goggles as we listen to survivors that we use that with an empowerment and excitement for the future and I experienced that I think we both enjoyed that about being on site with that team in Washington is that they'd had an awakening. They were wonderful, by the way, those, oh my. those people were far ahead of the curve and they worked together as a, as a team uh, from, from everywhere. Uh, the, the therapists, 
the respiratory therapists, the physical therapists, occupational, speech, the nurses, the nurse leaders, the, the, chaplains. the marketing uh, people. The CEO had the goggles on <laughs> and was and totally got the, the idea of the refraint. Uh, the whole hospital was was in on this. And uh, what an amazing group they were. Absolutely. I mean, we showed up and they had everyone, almost everyone had participated in the webinars. Even day one, when we showed up, they are, are already were, were reporting a 40% reduction in restraint use, which is That's clearly wonderful. a manifestation of the difference in their sedation practices and the delirium rates, right? But we also saw during that time, one or two patients that really could have benefited from the refraint. They were scary to leave in a chair, but they would have benefited from being in the chair. They needed to sit in the chair during the day, but it was scary to turn your back on them. But if they had had the refraint, they, the nurse, everyone would have been felt better about it and the patient would have been safer. So Exactly. And it's all experience. happening while the nurse is off doing other things. Yes. Right. So the refraint is on in the patient. The patient's awake and moving. They're moving those arms that are so scary in a safe way because the refraint uh, has a um, an IV and cord containment system. So as the patient moves their arms, they can't get tangled up in yep. anything. That's that's part of the beauty of the of the safety of the device. And so the nurse will have the patient in the refraint. So that's uh, delirium prevention, that's mobilization, that's sedation minimization. Uh, it's freedom for the patient. It's allowing the family to come in and actually interact with the patient all while they're off taking care of another patient or documenting. So it checks a lot of boxes uh, without any extra effort. And it was so neat to be on site to see a team that, like you say, were far, was far ahead of the curve. They had already done so many things to become more of an awake and walking ICU. And now they're really mastering the mobility section of it. I, I think they're on the map. I think they're awake and walking ICU. And to I see that you. even with that population, even with the improved sedation practices, that there were patients while we were there before our eyes that could have really benefited from a titratable refraint um, device. So check out the transcription. You have to see Dr. Pravini's videos. Any citations that you want to um, include, Dr. Pravini, I would love to have that on there. Lectures, whatever you have, let's put it on there. And everyone, go do their, your homework. Pitch this to your teams. If you need more help, we'll have Dr. Pravini's um, contact information on there as well. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you so much. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.